being self-aware about possible trauma, whether it's at healthcare professional level, whether it's childhood, you know, that's affecting your professional work. Because I see it so I see it in so many places. Hey, what's up? This is Corey Dion Lewis, clinical health coach and host of the Healthy Project Podcast. Now, the research shows that social determinants can have a greater impact on your health more than healthcare or lifestyle choices. The purpose of this podcast is to discuss how to improve health and reduce health inequity by speaking to healthcare professionals, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs. Now, if you're enjoying the podcast, give it a review. Or you can also make a donation to The Healthy Project using the link in the description. It takes 30 seconds and it's super easy. Hey, thank you so much for listening. Now let's get started. Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening to The Healthy Project Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Dion Lewis. Um, I have a great guest with us today. I have She's a pharmacist and co-founder of Patients for Patient Safety um, activist. I have uh, Dr. Sujin Jun. Um, Sujin, thank you so much for being on the podcast with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Corey. Thank you for having me today. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, before we get into um, the conversation, can you tell the people a little bit about yourself and, you know, what gets you up in the morning? Um, what gets me up in the morning? <laughs> um, so I'm a pharmacist. Uh, I work as a population health pharmacist, and um, I am also an, a patient safety activist. Um, I'm a co-founder for Patients for Patient Safety U.S. We are an organization dedicated to um, ensure that organizations in the United States are aligned with what WHO is um, pushing for um, according to the Global Patient Safety Action Plan 2021 to 2030. We are um, very passionate activists who either have experienced medical harm ourselves or um, have lost have lost our loved ones through medical harm. So we, all, all of us had to transform our lives and also advocate for other people and patients, caregivers and clinicians also. So um, that's what I do and that's what I um, get energized. Uh, that's where I get energy from um, to get up in the morning if you, to answer your question. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, no, it definitely sounds like you are, you know, a huge activist, you know, in, in this public health area. Where did your motivation to really get involved in this, where did it start for you? So before I became a pharmacist, I was a caregiver for my father, who was a foreigner from South Korea. And he was a businessman, had no healthcare background. And so was I. I was a wedding videographer at the time. And the care that I had to um, help him with was very challenging. So he was a stage three esophageal cancer patient. And, um, you know, he was in hospital and to 
then he was transitioned to nursing home. Then he went, he, he came home. And during that transition, he was also diagnosed with diabetes. And um, his primary care doctor prescribed something called insulin as it's common medication that diabetic patients um, get prescribed for. And there is a um, method called sliding scale insulin, which is you inject insulin according to the glucose reading that you would get when you're checking the blood sugar for patients. And um, that was the culprit of multiple hospitalization, that ER utilization that he had to seek for. Um, and um, in that process, I, you know, I was a very re religiously following the direction that was given by the doctor. So if you would get this much of blood sugar, you would give higher dose. If it's lower, then you would give lower dose. I was religiously following that. But that was actually the cause of these hospitalizations because there was no counseling about monitoring uh, what to watch out for when patients, when my father would um, have low sugar. So 50% um, of insulin users, even more um, patients will experience hypoglycemia uh, which is a low sugar in your body at some point in their lives. Some people don't, may not even know um, that they're experiencing low blood sugar. And it can also happen at night um, when, you're, when you're sleeping. So this is a really red flag because he was an esophageal cancer patient. He couldn't eat. So right there, that's a red flag. But because I had no background in healthcare, I had no knowledge of um, medications. It, it was, it was, um, you know, something bad waiting to happen when he was prescribed for it. And then we, when his blood sugar would drop, um, we would go to the ER, and then they would restore the blood sugar. And the discharge him with that, without any counseling. Why he was there and um, what could what we could do to prevent another hospitalization. So we will repeat the same thing again two weeks later. And um, so what happened? What really happened was that because he was um, a esophageal cancer patient, his um, food intake was you know, compromise. So he had to rely on feeding too. That can affect your sugar everywhere. That was one thing. And also he was not a good water drinker. So if you're dehydrated, your glucometer can falsely elevate your level. And what, what, what am I doing? I am injecting high level insulin because the, the reading is high. So, so there's an intricate relationship that's so important for all diabetic patients who are on insulin need to be aware of. And we never had a chance to get acquainted with that kind of knowledge. There was no one 
who was explaining this relationship, who was explaining what diabetes was, who was explaining what insulin was. So I felt so compelled that if I had a pharmacist who could educate me or my father, I think I thought what my father experienced could have been prevented. So I changed my career to be a pharmacist. Um, and eight years later, or, or I would say, eight, yeah, eight, eight years total later, I, um, I became a pharmacist. And after I became one, I realized I was just at, tip of, at the tip of iceberg. There's just so much, so much in the iceberg um, that needed to change. Um, so I began to seek what I could do in my position where I'm at, and I had to become an activist because of that reason, because, um, my, someone like my father, who was a minority and who was also a foreigner, um, that, you know, our healthcare system doesn't even worry about. I think um, I had to speak up for someone like him and someone like me was a care- caregiver for, for my father. So, so that was the start of how I began starting my, starting to share my story and began to speak up for patients. Wow, and that answers my question. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it makes sense why you go so hard for, for you know this this mission of yours, you know, and, and why you do it. And you know, patient safety. You know, as I was preparing for a conversation, you know, I was reading that patient safety is up there as far as one of the major killers of of people in in, in our country is is patient safety, and. Mm-hmm. How are they? How are people to expect to improve this when they're not getting the appropriate information before they leave the hospital? And this is one right. of those things, you know, that this is why a lot of people of color or minorities don't really want to go to the hospital when they hear stories like this. Yeah. Um, but what what I believe, you know, what I think is, you know, having more people like yourself in there is really going to. Um, Going to, be, going to help. So, you know, my question for you is, you know, what role does, you know, cultural diversity play in patient safety? What have you seen, you know, now being a pharmacist uh, and being able to, you know, work with, you know, I'm assuming di- multiple different types of, you know, people, um, what role does your background and your story play in being able to help improve patient safety? So it's interesting that um, I know there are movements out there and encouragements for minorities to be in healthcare profession, be in healthcare profession for the reasons that you've talked about. Um, so I've seen articles. You know, I want black black people. There has to be more black doctors that black people can see which I totally agree. Um, there are so many different things that come into play when, um, when um, there is a trust issue. So 
Um, this is something that um, I think is under-recognized, I feel. Um, when you don't have the level of trust, you can't reveal 100% of you. But when you are in healthcare, that's what you're expected to do, right? Um, but because because of the level of trust that um, you may have with the healthcare professionals in general, um, and you know, of course, there's racial bias and there's other factors that come in. Um, it's it's really difficult to even start doing start getting to the right conversation about healthcare. So that's what I want to um, emphasize first. Um, what I'm trying to say is healthcare is it starts at really, really deeper level. If you think about it, as a patient, you are expected to, um, you know, tell about yourself to somebody who you don't really know. I mean, if you think about when patients go to doctor's office, it could be a first time seeing that doctor, you only get 15 minutes and you're supposed to tell all your story um, of like why you're experiencing your symptoms. That's That itself, if you just think about just that, that itself is a really difficult task for patients to do. And on the other on the other side, it, for doctors to assess this patient and come up with a plan. So um, when it comes to diversity, I can see why people of color want to see other the you know healthcare professionals who are the same color as you, because I feel in patient's perspective in that fifteen minutes of time you want to make connection real quick. Right. And when your race is the same, and especially for someone like me in Asian culture, when like every country speaks different language, right? Right. Every, every country, every country in Asia speaks different language, even though, even if it's a tiny little country, they want to speak in the language you're com more com most comfortable with. So, and there's this notion that um, patients are being race, racist, and and I think that's in, in general that's a misunderstanding. Um, patients want to be heard. Patients want to communicate. So I think that's number one reason why they are seeking the same racial background when they are seeking for healthcare professionals' help. So I, yeah. it's just, I just want to throw it out there. So, so that misconception, I think it's a misconception that patients are being racist. Because I've seen that kind of exchange of interactions in forums and um, platforms out there. So, um, so I think that's something that I want to bring up to you um, to begin with so we can start in the right place. Yeah, I think there's some truth to that. You know, there at just as a clinical health coach in our in our primary care clinic, there are times where um, black patients will tell me things that they have not told their white provider. 
there's nothing I can do about it but put it in the note but it happens you know Mm -hmm. but my my question to to you Sujin is what about what do we do or what do those those those, um, providers do who may not um, there may not be a provider for someone who's Mm -hmm. from you know they just have no choice they they have who they have how can a provider be more culturally competent to be able to um, provide the best possible care they can for that patient, given that they're the only option they have, you know? Mm-hmm. Right, right. So I think there's more movements out there nowadays about more awareness about health equity and um, implicit bias. I, I feel like everyone has that, right? But I think yeah. you need to be able to catch yourself when you have that and so noticing yourself and being self-aware is something that I you know feel every healthcare professional needs to think about but that goes into deeper level for me and I I feel that I I want healthcare professionals to be able to look into themselves So this is where trauma-informed care that I advocate for comes in. Um, And it's it's, healthcare profession, healthcare is a very difficult field to work in. So our system is broken, of course, but also um, there's, you know, self-criticism, um, peer-to-peer criticism, um, blaming, shaming, these unhealthy behaviors that exist in healthcare, it's so rampant, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling. Um, so recently, there has been a case um, of a nurse who um, mistakenly injected um, a medication and a patient died, and that um, case has been very public and has been very publicly blaming the nurse without really investigating further and going deeper level um, for the system. So that's a very good example where our patient safety status is. It's a very good example of where we are, how it shows, how it affects healthcare professionals. So. There's this big system level change that needs to happen. But as an individual, I, I advocate for looking into themselves and um, being self-aware about possible traumas, whether it's at healthcare professional level, whether it's childhood, um, you know, that's affecting your professional work because I see it so I see it in so many places. It's very it's very obvious to me and evident to me that like I can see like why some people are so reactive about some of the comments. Um it could be it could be cultural thing too. Um you know some cultures it's okay for, you know, it's not okay in, in our cult in the United States, but it's in their home country, 
child abuse was okay. Like hitting, hitting children was okay. You know, this is like accepted behavior. So there are things that we kind of are doing things like an autopilot. We are doing things without being conscious about what we're doing wrong. So I think examining yourself and how you are practicing medicine is affecting patients is just so enormous. I can't, I can't emphasize enough that how important it is to be self-aware and looking into yourself because this, this does get translated to your practice and in the end to the patient. No, absolutely. That's very good. Um, you know, and, and understanding that you're not um, a trauma-informed care expert, but, you know, an advocate it, an advocate for it, for someone listening who wants to, um, and you gave some great advice, but for someone listening who wants to be more mindful of, you know, different traumas in different cultures, there, there are different things that, that um, affect different people. You know, so um, what are some first steps, you know, someone can do to really start to look um, at their practice and, you know, really implement more of a trauma informed, you know, care? Um, so there are um, or organizations that are dedicating their um, nonprofit organizations that are dedicating their efforts into um educate people and healthcare professionals to be more aware of tra trauma-informed care. So I would follow those nonprofit organizations. Um, there are, there's also a book called um, Body, Body Keeps the Score. It's a very well-known book about trauma-informed care. And also there has been a recent book called, uh, by Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Bruce Perry um, called What Happened to You. So that book really um, helped uh, recognizing my own trauma and um, it really helped my healing process as, as well, personal healing process. So I would recommend those books um, and, you know, really look into yourself first before advocating for other people because I, I, I realized that I had to transform myself first in order for me to be able to advocate for other, other patients, whoever I'm ad advocating for, because I really feel our, we are all connected and our energy, whether it's negative or positive, can really transpire to what we are communicating. So um, I, I felt the healing process that I had uh, for myself was so important for my advocacy work. No, for absolutely. I mean, and, and that's something we don't really think about is is focusing on ourselves first. Because um, mm -hmm. I, I can only assume that you're, you know, you're a caregiver, obviously, you're a caregiver, you are in a helping profession, so you want to help people before you help yourself, but can't really do that if you have not really focused on yourself first, so I, I really appreciate that. Um, 
So if we yeah. can kind of touch on a little bit of the work you're doing with patients for uh, patient safety, um, you know, it looks like you guys are uh, committed to implementing the World Health Organization's Global Patient Safety Action Plan uh, in the U.S. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what that plan is and, and kind of how are, you, how are you guys going about um, implementing it or, or, or doing that? So, um, so WHO has put out this um, action plan out there, so it can be a guideline for all um, healthcare organizations across the globe to follow um, in, like, focusing on what areas, what, like, I guess, naming what areas to focus on patient safety. So one of them is patient engagement and um, really working with patients to um, improve patient safety. And if you think about that, to someone like me, it's no brainer, but um, in general, how our healthcare is, um, has been in the past, we, healthcare in general is very hierarchical so we say prescribing meds, right, to patients. And it's more like a top-down approach. But what WHO is advocating for is bottom-up in a way. Um, if, if we are still in that hierarchical mindset. But actually, what, what we are advocating for is that patients are partners. Patients are partners in their care. And this is very important to be um, aware of, especially when our um, healthcare is going towards chronic care model. A lot of healthcare um, methodology and didactics that are taught in school are acute care model. I'm not saying that's not important, but chronic care is, is a different there's so much that goes on to dif- as a it's a different didactic it's a different methodology um in a way because you have to look at a long term goal you have to work with the patient for long term so um many things we we have to really think about the paradigm shift and this action plan can be a guideline for help healthcare organizations to really think deeply about how we are practicing medicine. Um, So our goal is to make patient safety as a priority for all healthcare organizations in the the United States. So um, there are um, other patients for patient safety organizations out there under WHO's umbrella, like, like we are. So um, there's Patients for Patient Safety Island, for example. So each country can create their own Patients for Patient Safety organizations uh, under WHO. Um, but for us, we, I mean, of course, there are other healthcare organizations in the United States, but we wanted we um, all our founders felt there wasn't one that were affecting at policy level, so we were formed 
to affect how policies are shaped. Uh, we want it to affect how um, patients and caregivers' voices are heard at policy level. So we have worked with um, organizations, the governmental organizations like CDC, CMS, um, and it's it's a time where um, I I feel these organizations are more open than ever about patient engagement. Right. So it's a great it's a great time for us to really engage in these talks and. Um, and I'm a, I'm very new in the group, um, but uh, other founders have been involved with these organizations for dec for decades. So it was really exciting and encouraging to see how quickly they were able to set up a meeting with um, leaders in these organizations and have some momentum and what we are pushing for and what what's really and emphasizing what's really important for patients. So um, so that's our goal and because patient safety is such a broad term and um, because of different priorities and different things coming up in healthcare, the word patient safety tends to get dropped. Um, as organizations prioritize different things and, um, you know, but I, I, we, we feel that needs to change. Patient safety has to be always there for healthcare organizations. It has to be like a North Star for all healthcare organizations. So, no, so that's what we are focusing on. That's awesome. Thank you for that information. And by, by the time this episode goes live, um, it'd be what is it patient safety month or, or day or something like there's there's some there's some day coming up for to recognize patient safety, correct? Yeah, so um September seventeenth is World Patient Safety Day. Um so um buildings around the globe are encouraged to light and orange. So you will see um, WHO building in Switzerland and um, other ones in the Europe being lighted in orange. And that has kind of come to the United States over the years. So I've seen some buildings lighted in orange and um, in support of World Patient Safety Day. Um, we are also organizing um, March in Washington, D.C. in Freedom Plaza on September 17th. If any of the listeners is interested in joining us, um, please contact me. Um, it's September 17th, um, 10 a.m. at Freedom Plaza. Um, there will be about 50 of us, hopefully. We are still um, spreading the word out and hoping that many people will join us. Um, but uh, just to make people aware of this day, how important um, patient safety is in healthcare. Um, you know, we are doing these um, events um, for World Patient Safety Day. Awesome, awesome. Well, I'll make sure I have all those links in the description of this episode. So, if people wanted to um, learn more about that, they know where to go. Well, you know, 
Sujin, thank you so much for being on the podcast with me today. I really appreciated the conversation. Um, for anyone listening that wants to um, learn more about you and what you're doing, uh, where can they find you? So our website is um, at www.pfts.us. Um, so you can check our website and um, in the contact us button, you can sign up as a champion. Or if you're interested in partnering with us as an organization, as a strategic partner, you can also fill out that form. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, again, thank you so much for being on the podcast with me today. I really appreciated it. And uh, everyone, thank you for listening to the Healthy Project podcast. I'll let you next time.